Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, November 2nd, 2023 reading of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. Boulder Gannick, Weight of the World. Former NCAR scientist turned eco-psychologist talks coping with climate anxiety by Kaylee Harder, November 2, 2023. Jeff Keel had been a climate scientist at NCAR in Boulder, studying topics like the greenhouse effect and stratospheric ozone for nearly two decades when something started to shift. Sometime around the year 2000, he was looking at the projections for rapidly increasing emissions over the next century and decided to look back to the last time the Earth's atmosphere contained that much carbon dioxide. He was struck by what he saw. It was 40 million years ago and, quote, a completely different world, unquote. Quote, I distinctly remember sitting at my desk, looking at these numbers, looking at the projected warming and CO2 levels, and just asking myself, what are we doing? Why would we do this? He says, in that moment, my feeling was this has to be psychological, unquote. Keel was so bothered by this disconnect between the severity of the problem and our collective capacity for action that he went back to school for clinical psychology and trained in Jungian analysis. Since then, he's practiced as a Jungian psychotherapist and analyst, written a book on eco-psychology, led conferences and workshops, taught at Pacifica Graduate Institute and UC Santa Cruz, and won AGU's Climate Communication Prize in 2012. He also continued his work at NCAR until retiring from his position in 2018. Keel is winding down his career now, no longer practicing clinically or teaching at a university, but he still leads workshops and gives talks. Things are different from when Keel first began his work of marrying psychology and climate. Back then, only a few others were thinking about eco-psychology, which wasn't even a term at the time, he says. Now there's a whole body of work dealing with the intersections of climate and psychology. A 2021 survey of 10,000 people ages 16 to 25 found that more than half of the respondents were very or extremely worried about climate change, with more than 80% at least moderately worried. Half felt, quote, sad, anxious, angry, powerless, helpless, and guilty, unquote. After the hottest summer on record, and with local climate disasters like fires and flooding looming fresh in our collective memory, I had a conversation with Keel about the psychology of climate change and how we can address our mounting anxiety. The interview has been edited for clarity and brevity. What are the psychological reasons we might avoid act 
acting on the information we have about climate change. Fight, flight, and freeze mechanisms are an integral part of the older part of the brain known as the limbic system. It's affective and it's emotional. When you're presented with traumatic information, the self-regulatory processes that normally work in a fluid manner are disrupted to the point where you cannot take in information. So if you're going to talk to people about something that's really threatening, like climate change, if you just bombard them with images of disaster after disaster after disaster, and that's typically how it's conveyed in the media, one response would be, well, people saturate. They'll just shut down. They'll dissociate. Evolution has provided us with very primitive ways of responding, as well as more sophisticated ways. A more sophisticated way from a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic approach is projection. It's not me that's causing this, it's them. These are not in themselves harmful ways of dealing with the world. They're actually there for a reason to preserve us and protect us, especially when we're a young child. The problem is when we grow up, they no longer benefit us. They can actually prevent us from living a fully engaged, ethically responsible life. There are other factors that are more social, which are fear-based, fear of losing one's autonomy. It's a big one in the United States. It's a culture we thrive on, but it is preventing us from acting on this problem. How can someone combat feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, fear, or anxiety? If it's severe, you go find somebody to work with. But in addition to that, or if you're not going to do that, I think it's absolutely essential to talk about how you're feeling. And so, one of the things I always encourage people to do is talk to your friend, talk to your family, or get a neighborhood group together. If you're a member of a church or a social organization, find a time where you can just sit in a room. You don't have to do psychotherapy. You just give people a chance to talk about how they're feeling, about what's happening in the world with regards to the environment. That alone is helpful. What are the psychological mechanisms there where talking about it actually helps combat that hopelessness. We know it's age old. If you look at any indigenous society, that's what they've been doing for centuries, for millennia, you know, sitting in a circle and talking over their problems, talking with their feelings. There's something innate in us that wants to do that, to share stories, to talk about how we feel. Psychologically, from a dynamic point of view, it's harmful to repress. It's an unneeded stress that can be lightened by expressing it. You may not feel better in the moment. You may feel terrible. But over time, you feel lighter because you're not holding all that stuff inside yourself. We are the storytelling animal, and so we like to tell our personal and collective stories. I think in recent years, it feels like the realities of climate change are hitting a lot closer to home. Boulder County, for example, has experienced devastating wildfire, drought, and flooding in the last decade. 
How did these local climate disasters affect our psyche differently than when it felt like those problems were farther away? I hate to say this, but that's a good thing in terms of getting people to realize the severity of what's happening. From that point of view, scientists will often say nothing's going to be done about this problem until there's a really, really big catastrophe, which will be so shocking that people will finally get their act together and start reducing emissions of carbon. I think the appearance of these catastrophes and disasters more frequently, more intensely, at home, not just in some remote place, are going to force people to take action. What are some of the ways we can take action? For me, there are three things to do. I'll start with the personal level. Personally, how am I going to live my life? What's my carbon footprint? Can I change my lifestyle so that my footprint is smaller? Beyond the individual, there's local activities. These are the things like, could I get together with a group of people, friends, family, or strangers, and meet once a week or once a month? Could I get involved in my city's planning for how it's addressing climate change? Can I communicate this issue? The science behind climate change is not rocket science. It is pretty straightforward. The more you talk about it, the more it's visible. Then we work to the national scale. If you want to be on the front lines in a march or protest, that's what you do. Another one of equal importance is to vote. Vote for people that are committed to actually reducing carbon emissions. Your political engagement and your environmental activism are things you can choose to do. There are things from a psychological perspective to be concerned about or aware of, even at the local level, that I've seen with environmentalists who burn out. So if you're going to get engaged in social and environmental activism in particular, you should have a support network. And then, of course, there's the global level. I believe in tipping points, social tipping points, and I think if you want to be hopeful, perhaps there is a social tipping point around climate change that will reach that we will reach a point where enough people are catalyzed that radical change can happen very quickly and we can finally address the symptom. Now there's a deeper cause to the symptom, the symptom being climate warming. But what's the root cause? For me, that's our relationship to nature. And this is deeply embedded in our myths, our religions. These are thousands of years old. What are some of those myths? And how would you characterize our relationship to nature? Well, our relationship to nature is one of dissociation. We are just collectively fragmented and distanced from nature. We view ourselves as apart from nature rather than a part of nature. And to see that contrast, you just have to spend time with indigenous peoples. And one of the key phrases of an indigenous society is reciprocity, and that we are in reciprocity with the natural world. We're not separate from it. We're inherently connected, interconnected to the natural world. The mythic system has pervaded, that has pervaded the West is the Judeo-Christian belief system in which, from the very get-go, we are told we have dominion over the earth. 
Dominion is just the opposite of reciprocity. So if you're raised as an individual, you go through history as a culture with the innate inherent lesson that we have dominion over nature. The end result of that is going to be a very, very different relationship to the natural world than one in which I am born into and culturally informed that I have in reciprocity with nature. Ultimately, we are paying the price for inculcating in us, generation after generation, this belief that our purpose is to control nature. We have to recognize that we are in a reciprocal relationship interconnected with nature. It has an inherent value. It's sacred. There are still people out there living this story. We have unfortunately created a system which has created this other story, which has been very destructive. And from my perspective, it's really the cause of the symptoms. So we can treat the symptoms. Getting off of fossil fuels is treating a symptom. But ultimately, we are going to have to change our conscious and unconscious relationship to the natural world. Otherwise, it's just a quick fix. But we're in such a dire situation that we need the quick fix. Is there anything else that you want to add or think we've missed in this conversation? I was thinking about what we were going to talk about this morning, and there was a word that just spontaneously came to me. The word was courage. That's something that isn't talked about a lot anymore. It's a part of many stories. That doesn't mean military courage or power or to dominate other people. It's a sense of feeling that I can go out and can make a difference in the world. I can make a difference in my own life, and I can go out and help be of aid to nature, first and foremost, for me. And the choice to actually do that, that for me is courage, to consciously say, I'm not going to be complicit. I'm not going to stand back and watch all this happen. We are innately born with a sense of courage, but we don't realize it. And if there was ever a time in the history of our civilization in which we all need to find that sense of courage within ourselves, it's now. Looking for more on the intersections of climate and mental health? Here's three resources Keel recommends. There's the Climate Mental Health Network, climatementalhealth.net. There's the Psychology Alliance North America at climatepsychology.us. And there's Good Energy at goodenergystories.com. The book Facing Climate Change, An Integrated Path to the Future by Jeff Keel, that's K-I-E-H-L, is available via Columbia University Press. Features Weed Between the Lines Dankward Dog New research looks at how practicing yoga affects a cannabis high, and the findings could be useful for psychedelic therapy. By Will Brenza, November 2, 2023. When a person takes psychoactive drugs, the experience is heavily influenced by their surroundings and frame of mind. 
Sage advice often repeated to first-time users is to focus on the set and setting, referring to one's mindset and social surroundings as key components of a successful trip. New research looking at yoga and cannabis use seems to back up that idea. A dissertation recently published with the University of British Columbia examined the impact of, quote, contextual factors during cannabis use, unquote, on the outcomes of a patient's well-being. Author Sarah Elizabeth Ann Daniels measured how the set and setting of a yoga class affected a person's cannabis experience. Quote, in studies of other psychoactive drugs used therapeutically, i.e. psychedelics, there is considerable attendance to extrapharmacological factors during the drug experience, as it is well known that such contextual factors can significantly impact clinical outcomes, unquote. Daniels wrote in her dissertation's abstract. Could those same contextual factors similarly affect the outcome of a person's therapeutic cannabis experience? Daniels designed a study to find out. She recruited nearly 50 participants who would self-administer cannabis twice, one week apart. One session involved practicing yoga while high. The other was spent doing whatever the participants normally did when using cannabis, like eating, watching TV, or socializing. The participants would then score their experience on things like, quote, state mindfulness, mysticality of experience, and state affect, unquote. The results unequivocally suggested that yoga helped improve the quality of the cannabis experience on all those fronts. The most commonly reported outcome of combining yoga with cannabis use, according to respondents, was an, quote, enhanced physical awareness, unquote. Quote, for example, participants reported they were more in touch or in tune with their body and their body's needs and felt their body sensations and sense of movement on a deeper level. Daniels wrote in her study. Respondents said this experience was not typical of their normal sober experiences with yoga and that it represented a positive change or gain. More than 70% said they would combine cannabis and yoga again following the study. Cannabis and yoga have a long history of use together going back thousands of years to ancient India see Weed Between the Lines, Ganja Asana, from December 10, 2020. And here in Colorado, there are now numerous businesses capitalizing on the dynamic duo, Bend and Blaze, Ganja Asana, and Twisted Sister Yoga, to name a few. So it should come as no real surprise that the yoga experience can be enhanced by cannabis use at least subjectively. But these results also suggest that the reverse is true, that the cannabis experience can be enhanced with yoga. Speaking to the importance of set and setting, 
When the study's respondents were in a safe space, mentally focused and mindfully moving, their high was better, more enjoyable, and more remedial. Quote, These findings suggest that paying attention to contextual factors and providing guidelines for therapeutic cannabis users may improve clinical outcomes when using cannabis to support mental health and well-being, unquote, Daniels wrote. Daniels' research could also help scientists and therapists better tap into the potential usefulness of cannabis as a therapeutic drug. Because so many patients use cannabis to manage anxiety, this knowledge could be useful for both cannabis users and therapy facilitators. Quote, providing specific behavior directions as well as psychoeducation on the role of set and setting may stand to maximize benefits and minimize harms of therapeutic cannabis use, unquote, Daniels wrote. Quote, based on the high degree of acceptability of the yoga intervention, yoga or similar mindful movement may be a useful recommendation, unquote. It could also be helpful information for psychedelic-assisted therapy providers, Daniels notes, adding more evidence to support the importance of set and setting to help patients get the most benefit out of a psychedelic experience. Cuisine, good taste, main line, main shack opens new headquarters on Pearl Street. by Colin Wren, November 2, 2023. When Drew Ryan opened Main Shack in Denver's Low High neighborhood at the tail end of 2019, he was looking for a home away from home. Ryan grew up in Maine, where his father ran an independent broadline food distribution company, quote, that inspired me to be our own distributor, unquote, he says. That means Ryan deals directly with several fishermen all in Maine, and he heads down to the airport twice a week to pick up the hundreds of pounds of lobster that go into the signature dishes. He does another weekly stop to claim the rest of the seafood, which includes fresh scallops, shrimp, haddock, and clams. The Denver location, which he and his partner, John Caprio, established as a celebration of their East Coast roots, is a two-story shack a stone's throw from another one of the city's more iconic perpetual lines, Little Man Ice Cream. Both draw crowds on hot summer days, with more than a few finger food fanatics bounced for pièce de résistance. The dish, which combines large chunks of about every one of the house's available fish in a robust tomato-based broth, was one of Ryan's childhood favorites and is entirely exquisite for both the nostalgic and the first-timer. Quote, as it gets colder, we're going to start running heartier dishes, unquote, Ryan says. The new bar will feature eight taps with lines that include the main beer company's famous lunch IPA, a Main Shack crisp, clean lobster ale produced in collaboration with Diebolt Brewing Company, 
will be available on site and to go in 16 ounce cans. Classic cocktails will be joined by an all day lobster Bloody Mary garnished with a lobster tail, lemon, celery, and olives. The main mule, which takes the standard copper mug classic and infuses it with fresh Maine blueberries, and the Cape Codder, which combines vodka, lime, and cranberry juices with smoked sea salt. Decor-wise, Ryan spared no expense in making sure that Main Shack Boulder is the real deal. Quote, If you're going to do Main Shack, you got to do it as authentic as possible. Unquote, he says. Designed in collaboration with Maine Cabin Masters Ryan Eldridge, Jared Jedi Baker, and Ashley Morrill, the place is covered head to toe with reclaimed wood from back home. A massive firewood display gives a nod to the forest that covers nearly 80% of what is affectionately known as the Pine Tree State. Quote, Our visiting friend, said this is more Maine than any place in Maine, unquote, Ryan says. On the plate, Maine Shack opening weekend, November 3 through 5, 2010 16th Street in Boulder. A portion of proceeds will be donated to support victims of the recent shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Cuisine, nibbles, full circle. Michelin-honored Ginger Pig Returns to Boulder by John Lendorf, November 2, 2023. Flashback to the summer of 2016 in Boulder. Ex-collegiate hockey player, ex-lawyer, and neophyte chef Natasha Sherman Hess takes a leap of faith. She launches a food truck dishing the Asian home and street food she fell in love with as a student living in Asia. She calls the business Ginger Pig. Over the next four years, Boulderites flock to her rich red curry, nine-spice fried chicken, char sui, and Bangkok rice balls with kaffir lime aioli. Then, in the middle of the pandemic in 2020, Hess took another giant step and opened a ginger pig restaurant in Denver, earning new fans and unexpected kudos. Earlier this year, it was one of nine Colorado eateries to receive the prestigious Bib Gourmand honor in the state's inaugural Michelin Guide Awards. Quote, I have to be honest, it's shocking that we got the Michelin, and I still don't really believe it. It's not like our dream came true, we never even thought about a Michelin. Hess says, To have our name in the same sentence that, as that word is humbling. Getting to serve our food at the ceremony in Denver was a highlight of my life. Unquote. All the while, Hess says, she yearned to bring her food back to the same place where it started, serving street food in the traditional style Take out only. After a year of planning, Ginger Pig opened October 24 at 1203 13th Street on the Hill, former site of La Chosa. Initially, the eatery will only be serving dinner. Quote, 
They always say location, location, location when it comes to restaurants. And this is a great spot, Hess says. There's so much foot traffic from the university, unquote. Ginger Pig Boulder was never intended as a sit-down eatery. Quote, I really look at it as a food truck that stays at one location, she says. It feels like it did when we had the truck with the takeout window, unquote. You can go home again. The new menu includes many of the old favorites along with some additions. Quote, I tried to make the food more transportable and more approachable, Hess says. These are dishes they could grab and eat on the way to class or something somebody could eat in their car, unquote. Besides rice and noodle bowls, Bon Mi are a new major player on the Ginger Pig Boulder roster. Quote, I spent some time in Vietnam tasting various styles of Bon Mi, Hess says. I found a Denver bakery that makes the right kind of loaves that are a bit more chewy and a little bit softer and less crispy, unquote. Ginger Pig offers traditional pate and cold-cut Vietnamese sandwiches, plus others, others layered with barbecued pork, fried chicken, or Sichuan eggplant. While the menu may be simpler, nothing has been dumbed down. Quote, this is quick takeout and delivery, but everything includes all the same great ingredients, like the pork we cook for 17 hours, unquote, she says. The signature star of the new ginger pig menu is an unlikely and somewhat outlandish, sweet and savory dish. Quote, the Hong Kong French toast might be the best thing I've ever made in the seven years I've been doing this, Hess says. Hong Kong French toast normally has peanut butter in it, but I replaced it with Kaya coconut jam. For this treat, bread slices are spread with butter, filled with sweet coconut jam, dipped in eggs, seasoned with soy sauce and white pepper, rolled in cornflakes and panko, fried and then drizzled with sweetened condensed milk. Quote, it's a really common dish all over Singapore and Malaysia, and a really addictive thing once you have it, she says. You just crave it and want more, unquote. The Ginger Pig Boulder menu is simply full of things Hess loves. Quote, we have a kimchi hot dog on a King's, Island, King's Hawaiian roll with kimchi and scallions and sesame seeds on top. I eat that one a lot, she says, unquote. The opening roster also features shaking beef, a cornflake-crusted Korean corn dog, and taiko tots, furikake-coated spuds served with salty cod roe mayo. The outside wall of the new location sports a huge mural of the original ginger pig food truck that launched Hess towards success. A lot has changed in the years since, but the chef is glad to return to the place where it all started. Quote, it is coming full circle for us to be back in Boulder, where people were so receptive to our food, she says. They helped us make the leap to open Ginger Pig in Denver. It feels comforting and safe to come home. Unquote. Local food news. Dark Horse Demise? 
The world-famous dark horse may soon go dark, as the baseline road property it has occupied since 1975 is slated for development. What will become of the historic decorations that adorn the walls of the famous burger restaurant and bar? Kawaii Konbini is open at 332 Main Street in the Old Town Marketplace in Longmont, selling Japanese foods and goods along with made-to-order rice balls and sandos. Boulder's Moksha has created a limited release of its Pueblo Green Chili Chocolate Bars made with peppers from Mauro Farms in Pueblo and ground into the cacao and sprinkled on top. Two Longmont beverage crafters, Dryland Distillers and St. Vrain Cidery, have co- collaborated on a limited edition Apple Ginger Pomo Colorado Aperitif. Time for the green tomato variations. The sudden arrival of winter in Boulder County has left farmers and gardeners like me with an abundance of green tomatoes. Some that have already started turning may ripen into red ones, but most won't. While we will dearly miss the sweet, red, ripe summer crop, green tomatoes are a culinary treat on their own. You can treat them as a firm vegetable like squash or eggplant, roasted or chopped and sautéed in a stir-fry or stew. There's always fried green tomatoes, egged and coated in crumbs or cornmeal, which are delicious. They also make good pickles. Finally, there are Depression-era recipes that substitute green tomatoes for green apples in pies. Words to chew on. Eating politics. Quote, The act of eating is very political. You buy from the right people and you support the right network of farmers and suppliers who care about the land and what they put in their food. Unquote. From Alice Waters. John Lendorf hosts Kitchen Table Talk with Chef Daniel Asher. Guests and listener calls 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. November 2 on KGNU-FM. Entertainment Stage Regional premiere of Cadillac Crew turns up the volume on a muted history of Black Resilience by Tony Tresca, November 2, 2023. When it comes to the proud and painful song of American history, many voices are often missing from the choir. Among these muted narratives are the stories of black women whose contributions to social movements have many times been written out of the official record. Tori Sampson's Cadillac Crew, playing at Aurora's Vintage Theater through November 26, is a defiant refusal to let these women be forgotten. This regional premiere, directed by Shoshana Staten, deftly highlights the over, often overlooked role of women in the struggle for racial equality during the civil rights movement. Quote, Cadillac Crew is framed around a speech that Rosa Parks never got to give about rape, which is also a civil rights issue, Staten says. It was about consent, which the male leaders did not want any woman to discuss, 
I had never heard of Cadillac crews before working on this play, but they were real groups of women who drove across the country organizing black and white women for civil rights, unquote. These extremely risky operations were organized by Dr. Dorothy Height, an activist who devoted her life to the advancement of black women. While these heroics may have been excised from history textbooks, the play brings them urgently to life in part by fusing a contemporary connection with the Black Lives Matter, BLM, movement. Quote, I've really enjoyed this story because I love being forced to learn, unquote, says actor Zia Loren, who plays 1960s activist D and BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors. Quote, I learned that the BLM movement was founded by three women, two of whom identify as queer, which I was completely unaware of. The show forces you to question why we just accept the information that's given to us, whether it's through the educational system or word of mouth about our own history, unquote. Following four women working in the Virginia Office for Civil Rights, played by Lauren Shadia Lyons, Kenya Mahogany Fashaw, and Caitlin Kendrick, Cadillac Crew thrusts us into a world where the fight for racial and gender equality collide. The play begins optimistically, with activists eagerly anticipating Park's arrival to deliver a keynote speech about the importance of including women's issues in the movement. However, as the day progresses, things begin to turn. On top of receiving irate phone calls and bullets taped to their doors, the women discover male leadership is blocking Park's speech because they believe it will be, quote, a distraction, unquote, which comes alongside devastating news that four women in a Cadillac crew were killed in Florida. Quote, after receiving awful news, you're seeing a bit of fear, hesitation, and fight or flight. You get to see what motivates these women to work for an office dedicated to eradicating class and color segregation, Lauren says. The climax of Act One is all about how far you are willing to go to make the world a better place for future generations, unquote. Family Ties one of the unique aspects of this production is the multi-generational influence shaping its direction. Staten follows in the footsteps of her father, Denver theater legend Jeffrey Nicholson, who helped build the Shadow Theater Company to bring African-American stories to the stage before his untimely death in 2009. Vintage Theater took over the building Shadow operated out of in Aurora after his death, but kept his name on the main stage theater, the Jeffrey Nicholson Auditorium. Staten's daughter, Lyons, is also in the cast, forming a familial connection that underscores the play's themes of legacies and the importance of preserving black history. Despite its historical setting, Cadillac Crew stays relevant by addressing issues of erasure, identity, and social justice we're still grappling with today. 
To that end, the play forces the audience to confront uncomfortable truths and become active participants in the ongoing fight for equality. Quote, I really hope that white people who consider themselves allies come to see it, unquote, says actor Caitlin Kendrick, one of the production's only non-black performers. Quote, I think it's a great history lesson and touches on things that are culturally important, but that we don't talk about, like mixed families and those racial dynamics. I want the audience to be the same as it is on stage, with people from various backgrounds coming to hear the story and each taking something different away from it." Unquote. In a world that often consigns the narratives of black women to the shadows, Cadillac Crew stands as a beacon of remembrance. Through Sampson's eloquent prose and the stellar performances of its cast, the play is a testament to the enduring power of storytelling, working to ensure that these once-forgotten echoes resound loud and clear. On stage, Cadillac Crew, various times through November 26 at the Vintage Theater, 1468 Dayton Street in Aurora. Tickets at app.arts-people.com. Entertainment Music, Naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, by Nature. Sadie Dupuis untangles trauma on first of Speedy Ortiz's album in half a decade, by Alan Scully, November 2, 2023. The mysterious process of making art can bring once-buried feelings to the surface, just ask Sadie Dupuis, the celebrated singer-songwriter behind the Philadelphia indie rock outfit Speedy Ortiz. During a writing session with new pornographer's mastermind A.C. Newman, the 35-year-old musician found herself unpacking trauma from her childhood that she never intended to explore in her art. Quote, my lyrics are a little archaic sounding, but I can tell this is about the child abuse that I went through, which I never wanted to write about before, because it's not even something I talk about in person with my friends, Dupuis says. But if it keeps coming out in my writing, I think I should try to honor that impulse. It seems like what my brain wants me to do, unquote. At first, Dupuis was uneasy about sharing such painful and personal details with the world. Quote, I was just like, oh, this is going to destroy my life, unquote, she recalls. But she has since found that dragging these darker feelings into the light on her band's anticipated fourth album, Rabbit Rabbit, has carved more space for connection. Quote, so many of us have had these harrowing yet formative experiences that we've been afraid to talk about or relate to one another because of the way child abuse is stigmatized, Dubuis says. I'm not alone in these feelings, and for other folks to also know that they're not alone, that has been helpful in a big way, unquote. Dupuis' journey of connection rolls on with extensive headlining tour for Speedy Ortiz coming to Globe Hall in Denver on November 16. 
In order to translate the band's first album in half a decade to the stage, Dupuis and her bandmates, Andy Molholt, guitar, Audrey Z. Whitesides, bass, and Joey Dubeck, drums, was the most involved process of the band's career. Quote, This new material was really time-consuming to rehearse, more so than previous stuff, because there are so many little details we wanted to make sure we get just right, Dupuis says. We want everything to be very tight live, so we spent more time rehearsing this new stuff than we've ever spent on rearranging a new recording for the live setting. Unquote. Twists and Turns Rabbit Rabbit, the first Speedy Ortiz album since 2018's Twerp Verse, is the band's most intricate offering yet. Here, Dupuis' trademark overabundance of melodies and hooks meets instrumental breakdowns, rich vocal harmonies, and shifting time signatures that reward listeners who venture down the proverbial rabbit hole. Quote, We did a fair amount of rearranging, too. So a song like Cry, 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 for example, opens with this choral arrangement with a lot of layers of my voice. I was like, I am not doing this. I will die of shame if I use a vocal pedal to create a chorus of me live, she says. So we took a synth part that I played on the record. It's pretty buried in the mix, but it's like a cool texture. Now the live version opens up with that. So we had a lot of fun creating little things like that to differentiate the live set from the recording, unquote. But all that work put into making Rabbit Rabbit a reality didn't come without a significant investment of time and labor. For Dupuis, that meant writing and demoing all of the songs, as she has done since forming Speedy Ortiz as a solo project in 2011. But this time around, the process was more involved than ever. The result will feel like a familiar embrace for Speedy Ortiz fans long clamoring for new material. The album's angular intertwining guitar lines and catchy vocal melodies dance with Dupuis' opaque impressionistic lyrics. But these new songs are more intricate, more rhythmically creative, and a bit thornier than previous efforts. Quote, I basically made a version of the album at home by myself and produced and mixed it so the band could learn it and change things and go from there. It gave us a really strong blueprint and direction toward what production might sound like, even before we picked a studio and brought Sarah Tudzin of Illuminati Hotties on as a co-producer. I think that accounts for a lot of the naughtiness of it, Dupuis says. Of course, my bandmates brought their own ideas and twists and turns to the table, so it's very dense, hopefully in a way that's comprehensible. Unquote. On the bill, Speedy Ortiz with Space Moth and Mr. Atomic, 7 p.m. Thursday, November 16, at Globe Hall, 4483 Logan Street, in Denver. Tickets at globehall.com. Events. A Year with Frog and Toad. Saturday, November 4, 2023, 7 a.m. 
Additional dates, Friday, April 12, 2024, 7 a.m., and Monday, May 6, 2024, 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. at the Arvada Center, 6901 Wadsworth Boulevard, Arvada, Colorado. Events, Dia de Muertos Exhibition, Sunday, November 5, 2023, 9 a.m., also Friday, November 3, 9 a.m., and Saturday, November 4, 9 a.m., at the Longmont Museum, 400 Quail Road in Longmont, free. Dia de Muertos, Day of the Dead, is a time to celebrate our deceased loved ones. The Dia de Muertos exhibition returns to the museum's Swan Atrium in its 23rd year this fall, featuring ofrendas, or altars, built by community members and the work of local artists. Learn, get more information at longmontmuseum.org or call 303-651-8374. Events. The Arts Hub presents The Redemption of Gertie Green, Saturday, November 11, 7 p.m., and Sunday, November 12 at 2 p.m. at the Arts Hub, 420 Courtney Way in Lafayette, Colorado. Phone number 303-229-1127. Price $12 to $14. In The Redemption of Gertie Green, the truth comes out in the most unexpected ways. Is Gertie really what everyone calls her? A mean, freakish bully? Or can Mrs. Fillmore's quirky drama students see past the scuttlebutt to discover the real person behind the rumors? Join our brand new Arts Hub thespians for this beautiful story about the transforming power of kindness and the importance of standing up for people who can't defend themselves. Tickets at Arts Hub, that's A R T S H U B dot org. Events Rocky Mountain Chorale presents Wisdom of the Moon, Saturday, November 18, 7 30 p.m. to 9 30 p.m. at the First United Methodist Church, 1421 Spruce Street in Boulder. Tickets are $10 to $25. And you can get them at brownpapertickets.com. Events, Boulder Potters Guild Fall Holiday Pottery Sale, Saturday, November 11, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Additional dates, Thursday, November 9, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m., Friday, November 10, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m., and Sunday, November 12, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Boulder County Fairgrounds Exhibit Building, 9595 Nelson Road in Longmont. Free. Mark your calendar and join us for our annual fall show and sale. This sale will take place in the exhibit building. Give the gift of local handmade functional pottery, sculptural ceramics, and more. 40-plus members of the Boulder Potters Guild will be showing and selling their work. Learn more about the makers by following us on Instagram and Facebook. 
Reception to meet the artists is Friday, November 12, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Join us for live music and light refreshments. Meet and mingle with members of the Boulder Potters Guild. For more information, call 303-678-6235. Events, Kids Holiday Baking, Friday, November 10, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the Food Lab, 1825 Pearl Street in Boulder. Events in person, Growing Gardens School Days Off Class, Harvesting and Hibernating, Friday, November 10, 2023, 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Growing Gardens Hawthorne Farm, 1630 Hawthorne Avenue in Boulder. Price is $95. Winter is on the horizon. Now is the time to learn how to utilize the final few vegetables growing for tasty snacks and seed saving. Learn how to winterize your garden. Garlic, goats, and a good layer of mulch should do the trick. Just as our plants settle in for a winter dormancy, it is a seasonal, is it a season for us to slow down, reflect, and rest? Come play games, eat delicious fall snacks, and learn about this unique time on the farm with us. For more information, visit the website at growinggardens.org slash event slash harvesting dash and dash hibernation dash on dash the dash farm. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.